Vodka. Hey everyone, it's Amber Love of Vodka Clock Podcast and AmberUnmasked.com. Don't forget, this is an explicit podcast and website. And this particular episode of Vodka Clock comes with a trigger warning because we are going to be talking about rape and rape culture and um, the fact that some people even deny that these things exist. So if you're easily offended, susceptible to triggers about sexual assaults or under 18, you should probably find someplace more appropriate to be. And uh, so to help me discuss this important topic, on the line I have Rebecca Nagel and Hannah Brancato, who are working on a Kickstarter campaign to get a national monument for rape survivors and victims with the organization called Force Upsetting Rape Culture. So, Rebecca and Hannah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Um, Now, one of the things that uh, is striking immediately about the Upsetting Rape Culture website is that uh, I think maybe people discovered Force because of the Consent is Sexy underwear and that was like a practical joke that was made that people actually thought it was the Victoria's Secret brand pink that uh, came out with the underwear, but it was actually just a joke. And it was so well received that I'm really happy to see that somebody's actually making it. because. Uh, um, and there's even different versions of it. There's sort of like the traffic light panties where it's like, uh, you know, red pair and yellow pair. Um, so... Talk to me about where where this came from or who designed it or what you know about them. Yeah, so the prank, the um, Pink Love's Consent prank was something that uh, Force created. It was a culture jam to basically promote the idea of consent. So we used Victoria's Secret's brand and their media presence um, to get a lot of people to see an image of consent and to talk about that in contrast to the styles that Victoria's Secret was promoting, which we felt like were part of rape culture. Um, so we had a fake website that had underwear with different slogans on it, like ask first and no means no and consent is sexy. And we compared some of our slogans to Victoria's Secret slogans. So Victoria's Secret had had underwear and still does had underwear that says, um, sure thing and no peeking. And so, you know, we contrasted ask first with sure thing and replaced no peeking with no means no because we believe that um, in sexual exchanges, no isn't a way to flirt. It's a way to set a boundary. And then that needs to be clear um, for young people. So basically what we wanted to do with the prank is point out uh, the way that rape culture was being perpetuated in uh, products that most people wouldn't normally uh, give a second look and to therefore like give people tools to be a little more equipped to be critical of the things that they're consuming and uh, envision what a different kind of world, a world that is based on consent could look like. And um, we did towards the end of the campaign encourage people to make their own consent themed underwear because of course we weren't actually selling them at the time. We were simply spoofing the Victoria's Secret website and proposing this other alternative idea. Um, So we gave out like DIY guides to how to make your own underwear. Um, I will say that the underwear right now, um, we do have a couple of styles available as prizes just for the next eight days of our Kickstarter campaign. By the time the podcast 
airs. I think it'll be seven days. Um, so if people are interested in the uh, in the consent-themed underwear, that's a place to get them is through the Kickstarter. Yeah, I definitely uh, I noticed that right away. That was the first place that I saw them in the reward section. And then when I popped over the website, I was like, oh, they really have like these, uh, you know, and I, and I thought that was so cool. Now, did you was there some sort of like problem with Victoria's Secret? Did they try to stop you from making these or anything? So Victoria's Secret never contacted us directly. What they did is they contacted the companies that hosted our information online. So they sent a takedown notice to the company that hosted PinkLovesConsent.com, which was a fake website. And then we also made fake Twitter handles, Pinterest account, and Facebook account. And they also sent takedown notices to, you know, Facebook and Twitter. And we got censored. The Twitter handle is still down Content was taken down by Facebook and Pinterest. We've been blocked from Facebook searches. Um, and our website was actually taken down, and we had to move it offshore. So now it's housed in Iceland. So um, basically, I think the moral of that story is that, um, you know, what we did was protected by parity and yes. fair use in copyright yes. law. Um, but these takedown notices they can, you know, a large corporation like Victoria's Secret can send a takedown notice and then companies get intimidated, maybe especially companies that get some advertising dollars from them. And so while social media was a really great tool for the campaign, it was also limiting because we were censored so much by Twitter and Facebook. I was I was thinking that exact same thing, that, uh, you know, obviously it was a parody. Afterwards, you came out and said it was a parody. Um but it definitely gets people in hot water. Like you said, it's a big corporation, and you're kind of going up against the Goliath, um, you know. So at least at least you found some sort of way to work around this. Now, has that impacted Kickstarter at all? The, the Kickstarter is totally fine now. Um, the Pink Club's consent prank was in December, um, and so that was over before it, the holidays. Um, we timed it to be at the same time as the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show, which actually was in late November. Um, start, yeah. We launched it December 4th. December 4th, right, right. Um, and so, yeah, that was long over by the time we launched the Kickstarter campaign. Um, in, yeah, and we can talk more about how that whole thing uh, came about, too. Sure. Um, now, what is your role at Force? So Force is a, a art, artist activist project that is Rebecca Nagel and Hannah Brancato. <laughs> <laughs> We're the co-founders and the co-creative directors, um, but we don't tend to use those titles because they're really wordy. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, let's. Um, we're you know we're talking about rape culture and the fact that it's denied uh, that it even exists. It's a lot of just, you know, shut up, you whore type responses when you talk about rape culture online. So do you have, like, a reasonable definition for it? Yeah, so rape culture is um, any kind of media, images, laws, um, social norms that make rape seem inevitable and normal and that also enable um, – people to b continue to believe that rape is something that can't ever end, that it is simply the way that thing, the way that it is. Um, and so when we talk about upsetting rape culture, we believe our role is to point out the things that we see as perpetuating rape culture, such as silencing victims or, um, you know, selling 
underwear that says sure thing and um and therefore to get people to be able to um you know, consider the, the way that things could be if we weren't living in the straight culture. It is something that's so normalized that most people don't even see it, which is really important. It's often very invisible. Yeah, and that was really evident uh, this month. We're recording this in June, and um, the E3 conference uh, is going on. I think it's just wrapping up. And there was uh, quite a kerfuffle over at the Xbox conference when a producer uh, took the stage, uh, he's a man, and he took the stage with a woman, and they were playing Killer Instinct against uh, each other, and it was done in rounds. So what went viral was round one of their play against each other when he, you know, makes this, you know, what seems so clearly to be a rape comment. Um and it, I believe it was relaxed, just let it happen, it'll be over soon. And it's up on Kotaku.com, if you haven't seen it. So um, it, it seemed really obvious to me and to many other people, and yet other people were just like, well, what are you talking about? There's, that's not, it doesn't, there's no word rape in there. He's not, he's not saying anything, you know, he's not teabagging her, he's not saying, you know, oh, I'm going to, you know, rape your skull when I'm done or, you know, which that goes on in online gaming. Um, But relax, just let it happen. It'll be over soon is like what we hear from conservative politicians all the time. Yeah, I think that a lot of, um, you know, I think that part of what rape culture is, you know, it's like a fish in water. If you told a fish that it was swimming in water, it would look at you and say, what's water? And because we're so used to the culture that we're in and it's been normalized, uh, we think that it's normal because that's what we see every day. That's what we hear. Those are the images in the media and the laws that we're surrounded by. And I think a lot of what the messaging that force does is pointing out these things that are so obviously wrong, but it's giving it form. So like a lot of people, when they would look at maybe the Victoria's Secret underwear and see sure thing on a song that's being sold to a 16 year old, doesn't really think about why that's wrong. And then on the website, when we put it next to the ask first song and talked about, you know, how no vagina should ever be a sure thing, it makes that more obvious. And I think that that comment sort of fits into the same category where the, you know, lay back, relax, just take it. Um, phrase is something where a lot of times people have trouble connecting those dots and I think it's our job as feminists and as activists and you know in force in particular as artists is to sort of highlight and point those things out um, in a way that's clear for people because even though it seems insane that it's not clear it's not clear to people because we're so used to it yeah, so we definitely, you know, in terms of the the anger, the, I think when people confront the fact that they've perpetuated rape culture or participated in it, um, really when people confront any kind of privilege for the first time, there's a lot of anger and shame and um, indignance and, um, you know, all kinds of emotions that go along with that. And I think that especially because of how faceless the Internet is, a lot, a lot of times that comes out in these really, um, I don't know, violent ways on these message boards and conversations that happen online around 
uh, instances of rape culture. And we were really aware of that going into the Victoria's Secret campaign and in all of the campaigns that we do, which is why clarity is really important in our messaging and why our messaging focuses on solutions rather than simply pointing out problems where solution oriented, pointing out an alternative culture, the way that things can and should be. Um, and what we say a lot of the time is um, it's hard to argue with the alternative that we're proposing. Um, it, it, you know, ultimately it would benefit everybody a lot to, um, you know, be part of a consent culture to, um, honor people's experiences instead of shaming them, right? Um, this is something that's, you know, provides a mutual benefit to lots of different people. And, well, something that has, has come out, and I've seen a TED talk, and I've seen a lot of, um, men on the, the internet that, uh, are, you know, perfectly gentlemanly and chivalrous and make their blog saying, you know, look, we're, you know, we're decent human beings. Those people are shitheads and we, um, you know, we address, you know, we want to address this from a male perspective that this is a problem. And uh, one of the writers, Chuck Wendig, who runs the blog Terrible Minds, um, he sort of did coverage of this in three parts and it wasn't specifically about rape culture but it was more about sexism because there's a lot of sexism going on in, in publishing right now there was a big problem with the uh, science fiction writers association and um he got some flack because he's a man and it was like you know, some people got upset being like dude if you know why do you think that women need you to jump to their defense and it's like, well, you know, he was, was trying to point out something and, <laughs> it's just, you know, if anything, more gender neutral, like as in, you know, hey, we all need to behave better. And instead it was, you know, kind of dragged across the coals for it. And uh, but there's a TED talk also where they said, you know, look, this is, uh, you know, abuse against women and violence against women is a men's problem. And it's something that you at least for me anyway, like I want to take it and I want to believe it that they have good intentions when I hear words like that. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, huh? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I agree like with one of part of what that person is saying. Um, I think I've seen that Ted talk, you know, 99% of the perpetrators of sexual violence are male. And so I think that if we don't address some, of the root gender causes of sexual violence, which some of the, which some of which I think is the way that our culture constructs masculinity and a lot of the expectations and um, sort of behavioral norms that are put on to men. Um, but I think, I think that it's going to take our entire culture shifting and the behavior of everyone to do the two main things that force focuses on, which is promoting a culture of consent and also um, creating healing space for survivors. So for consent, I mean, consent is for everyone who's sexually active, who's engaging with a partner, men, women, and people in between. And then in terms of making healing spaces for survivors, again, it needs to be spaces that are public and are open and aren't in the private sphere of life. And that's going to be, you know, for all genders. 
And um, one of the things that we uh, do a lot of work for at um, the comic shop where I volunteer, Comic Fusion in New Jersey, um, we do a big fundraiser for domestic violence every year. And uh, it's always in October. And um, the shelter there, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if this is the, you know, the norm or if it's just the average, but, you know, it's referred to as the women's shelter. It's um, a safe, secure lockdown facility, and women and children have temporary housing there. Um, now, I don't know what happens at some point, like, with boys, are you know, do they get to a certain age when, you know, they're just used to violence and like, are they sort of shit out of luck? Like what are they, you know, what happens to, to them? Um, so in domestic violence, there is a cycle of violence that um, has been, uh, you know, been researched and developed mostly by the, uh, you know, violence against women movement and the domestic violence shelters and anti-violence organizations that exist across the country. And, um, so, you know, in the cycle of violence, basically part of the premise is that people who are abused are more likely to be abusers in the future. Um, now, the thing is that we as force um, think that the work that's being done, direct service work that's being done in shelters and by anti-violence organizations is important, amazing, and always in need of additional support. But that's very different from the kind of work that we're doing. We're not doing direct service work. Um, what we're doing is pointing out parts of media and culture that we see as perpetuating rape culture. And actually, um, I think this is a good uh, transition point to kind of talk about the Monument Project and the Monument Quilt, which is what we are currently raising money for through the Kickstarter. Um, so domestic violence shelters were started in the 1970s um, as a way to provide refuge and um, support for people that were being abused and their families. And prior to the 70s, these shelters didn't exist. Services um, didn't exist. Um, abuse was very normalized in our culture. Um, this is our, around the same time that uh, rape crisis hotlines were founded. And so, you know, the, again, these are services that always need more support um, and, you know, more funding and all of these things. However, they are things that are established as normal now in our culture. Mm -hmm. Everybody accepts that domestic violence shelters are needed and necessary and worthy of funding. Um, we believe that for survivors to heal, the next step after being in a safe, private um, and a um, secluded space where they can actually protect their identities from their abusers who are often looking for them. We believe that um, the next step for survivors to heal after that private space is to have public forums to see that you're not alone, that the experience isn't isolated, that it's part of a systemic problem, and that it's necessary and um, really important for our culture to create and provide those public platforms. And so what we're doing with my project, Rebecca can tell you about. And just to add, I think every survivor, you know, sexual violence is a deeply personal issue, and so every survivor should be able to choose who, what, when, where, how they share those experiences. And in that choice, sharing your experience publicly should be just as easy as talking about it with your friend. But because we live in a culture where when people experience sexual violence, they're silenced, they're shut 
they're slut shamed. People don't have that option to share with their community, to get support from their community and to reconnect um, after an experience of violence that often makes people feel very disconnected. So we think that there should be a public monument to survivors of rape and abuse. And we believe in building a public monument because we think that survivors um, need and deserve public spaces to heal and that a monument will be a symbol for our country to help us um, move towards a day without rape. Um, we think that, you know, the entire campaign towards building a monument and the projects that we're doing leading up to it are helping us create a culture where instead of um, blaming and shaming and silencing survivors, we're honoring and respecting survivors for thriving through these experiences. And why did you think that... Um, uh that a quilt was a good idea as opposed to some sort of, you know, engraved piece of granite. Um, like the, the quilt made me think of the eighth quilt. So we're doing a series of temporary monuments. We did the first one on Valentine's Day of this year um, in part, in at the same time as One Billion Rising on V-Day, which is Eve Ensler's, you know, international um, call to end sexual violence, and we floated a poem on the reflecting pool that said, I can't forget what happened, but no one else remembers. And these um, were larger-than-life letters, each eight foot, um, and, you know, created this massive raft that we sort of floated as a call to, as a call to begin this conversation about what a monument, a permanent monument would be. The second temporary monument is going to be the quilt, which is going to spell messages to survivors, and in each blanket will be a survivor's story. Um, and we are working in this tradition of the um, AIDS quilt, which is iconic and did uh, what you know, for AIDS, what we would like to do for um, sexual violence, which is to remove the stigma from the victim or their survivor and to create a public platform to talk about the stories, therefore, um, you know, shifting the way that it's discussed in the media. Um, and also, you know, we're going to have this, you know, iconic, amazing image that comes out of the installation of the quilt but we're also for a weekend going to create a physical space where people can gather and sit and eat and talk. And this is actually going to model what we believe the permanent monument eventually can become, that it actually can be a gathering point mm -hmm. for people to reflect on um, what it would mean to have a day with, to end rate. Yeah. So the community conversations, do you want to talk about that? Yeah. And, and just to sort of fledge out the monument quotes a little bit more, um, it's going to happen in summer of 2014. We're currently um, collecting stories. So the, the entire quilt will contain the stories from survivors. If you'd like to share your story, you can email it to us at upsettingrapeculture at gmail.com. And we're asking people to use the subject line, my story, and also to tell us what color they would like their quilt square to be. Um, and then the monument quilt is also going to double as a picnic blanket. And so we will install it on the lawn of the National Mall between the Washington Monument and the Capitol Building for one weekend in the summer of 2014 and invite the public, like Hannah said, to sit, eat, and talk. And so in occupying the mall, 
for one weekend, we will show how you can have this dialogue, which is difficult for people, which is something that a lot of people feel like you can't talk about openly and publicly in a very, very highly visible public space. And I think that just that event will be a symbol for people to say, oh, yeah, okay, our country can do that. Our cities can do that. Our churches can do that. Our towns can do that. This isn't something that, you know, we have to feel ashamed of or carry in secret. It's something that our culture is capable of dealing with in a more public way. Right. The massive picnic blanket essentially is a call to action um, and to arms for people to organize and make the permanent monument a reality. Um, we're facilitating a couple of community conversations in Baltimore, D.C., and New York um, about the need for a public and permanent monument and the kind of work and mobilization that it will take to um, begin the progress of creating a permanent monument. So by no means do we imagine that the quilt and the picnic blanket that we're making next summer, we don't imagine that that is the permanent one, um, but we hope that it is getting the conversation going and creating an I- the idea, creating space for the idea in people's minds for a permanent monument. So will the quilt um, provided enough money is raised, I'm assuming, will the, will the quilt ever get to go on tour? We'll see. Yeah, anything are, can happen. <laughs> I think those are big questions. I think right now we're just working on making it, and then the life after the installation in summer of 2014, I'm sure, will be a whole other chapter of the project. Yeah, we are doing the first installment of the quilt this summer, really early fall. Um, we'll be doing a sort of mini picnic in Baltimore, where we're from and where we work, um, in partnership with a couple of congregations here in town. Uh, and it'll spell part of the phrase. It'll be a much smaller scale version of what mm-hmm. the mall uh, installation will be next summer. So, And um, are you getting particular help from a company? Because I think about the... Um, the size and the space and the fabric that this involves. Is there, is there a particular company that's helping you do this or is this something that you guys are literally like grassroots doing this yourselves? We're crowdsourcing the funding for it. So we have um, a Kickstarter going right now. Um, our goal is $25,000 for the materials that we need. Um, And right now we're at, 17,128. So um, we're uh, really, really, really close to getting our goal. And if we can um, get all the way there, then we'll have enough money to buy the materials that we need to make the quilt happen. We'll probably need to do a little bit of additional fundraising. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that'll be a good start. It'll that'll be, be a good start. Exactly. It'll make it. It'll be a good start. I'm sure we, I'm sure that we will be seeking, you know, to augment like the amount of money that we're able to raise. We'll be seeking donations. We'll be looking for volunteers and for people that are interested in supporting us. We hope that they'll get to the Kickstarter and that they'll share the Kickstarter link in the last seven days of the campaign. That's the biggest help that people can um, do for us is to help us make the campaign viral on the Internet and just make sure that people know about it. Because what we found is that people are incredibly supportive. They just need to be given the information. Um, And, 
you know, people can follow us on Twitter at Upsetting Rape or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com um, slash Upsetting Rape Culture for updates about calls for volunteers, calls for donations, ways to get involved, any kind of updates about the project. Um, also, if they get to the Kickstarter, we'll be regularly sending updates to the supporters of Kickstarter. So, Okay. Um, yeah, hopefully uh... – Hopefully that'll work out for you. Now, what happens if you don't reach the $25,000? Do you have a backup plan? We'll reach the $25,000. Yeah, we're optimistic. We're doing really well. Um, you know, we're, we basically set a goal yesterday to make $1,000 a day for the rest of the campaign, and we've um, already made more than that. So we feel really good about it. Okay. Um, now, uh, something that I was curious about, and I don't know why, um, I just don't recall this ever coming up but there's we're talking about domestic violence and there's we sort of like have a domestic violence awareness month um which is october uh and it's always competing with breast cancer so it's constantly overshadowed but is there a day or some sort of recognition about uh rape survivors there's sexual assault awareness month month which is is april which is april and then of course even slurs v day which really has gotten a lot of momentum also, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is on Valentine's Day, February 14th. Okay. Um, and, you know, during April, um, a lot of colleges do Take Back the Night, which is a platform for survivors to tell their stories and gather and have a critical mass. Um, yeah. And, there, you know, there's different events like that. All right. I had heard that, and I never even knew what it was. I mean, I guess it's just something that my college didn't do anything about because it was about 99% female. Um, Have any of these news stories that have been coming up been helping, uh, helping force sort of get out there and become more well-known? I mean, obviously like the, the pink parody did wonders, but um, the Steubenville, Ohio trial was, pretty devastating to a lot of people and that was just like the one that was publicized i mean this goes on all the time um but the for example like that the hacker from uh the anonymous group night uh, his name is derek lowstetter he was just uh his identity was revealed and he is likely to get nine to ten times more jail time than the Steubenville rapists so when the news breaks on this sort of stuff. Do you have any metrics to see if more people are able to get to the force website and, you know, maybe help spread the word of what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not something that we measure in terms of website hits, but I think it's something that we measure in terms of like the pulse of our country, which is, yeah, I don't think our work would be as successful as it had been two years ago, maybe even a year ago. I mean, starting with the presidential elections and the congressional elections and the comments that Todd Akins made and then all the comments that all the politicians made after him um, and then what happened in Steubenville, there's been news story after news story after news story, which is great because, you know, for the first time in my lifetime, we're having a national conversation about sexual violence. Um, and it's been a long long silence topic. What we need to make sure that we're doing with the national conversation is that we're not just talking about rape, but that we're 
ending rape. And so I think that's one of the things that we focus on as an organization, as force, is in all of the amazing conversations that are happening, and often problematic conversations, of course, too, as we've seen with the news coverage, is, you know, we're asking ourselves what's missing. And a lot of times what we find is what's missing is the experience of survivors. You know, in the coverage of Steubenville, what was really frustrating was while there was a lot of sympathy for the rapists and for the young men that went to jail and for the tragedy of that and what that means for their lives, there was little coverage of what the tragedy was for the survivor of the rape and what the impact was on her life. And so, again, we see that the focus isn't on the experience of survivors. And so that's why we do projects where we try and highlight the experience of survivors and insert those back into a national conversation. Because until we hold those stories and really make peace with those experiences, we're not going to start to end rape. Well, in the in this particular case, anyway, there was a shield law enacted. So, um, didn't a, a lot of people did you know wonder what um, she was going through and what her life had become, but nobody was allowed to discuss it. So, um, even though I guess one of the one of the news agencies apparently let her name slip and. People, people saw it, but, um, but for the most part, I still don't know what it is, and because I'm not about to go rooting through cached files to find it, because I don't want to know. It's not, you know, it's not my business. I just want to know that she's well. Um, yeah, fo- I mean, focusing on the experience of survivors doesn't mean revealing survivors' identity. It means having a conversation that primarily is concerned with, um, you know, honoring and respecting um, the survivor. Um, reinforcing the idea that rape is never the survivor or the victim's fault, Um, you know, reinforcing the idea that the shame should not be placed on the survivor. These are the kinds of things that we mean when we say highlighting the experience of the survivor. Um, And do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, and I think just, you know, all of the conversations that happened around, um, you know, if she was drunk or sort of all of these people speculating, I think, which is why we are creating these very clear messages in the monument quilt. The quilt will actually spell these phrases that we think that um, survivors need to hear and our country needs to learn how to say to survivors. I think actually the latter is more important. And so in this huge gesture of this quilt that we're laying out on the mall, I think symbolically it's our country, it's our nation's capital, saying this back to survivors. And um, the phrase is, is, you are not alone, it's not your fault, we believe you. Those are the things, because so often survivors hear that it's their fault, that they did something wrong, that they brought it upon themselves, that it wasn't really rape because X, Y, Z. And so we're trying to shift those cultural messages. Right. And um, I know it's obviously uh, sort of like a power struggle at times. And sometimes you're dealing with with children or, you know, people who have some sort of barrier that prohibits them from thinking that they're not, you know, that they're almost like brainwashed. And um, something that's gaining a lot of momentum right now is the Invisible War movie, which I have not seen yet, but I know is out and and circulating. And there are basically like tribunals going on with um, rape in the military here in the U.S. 
And when the person in charge of handling that is then <laughs> removed from from his post because he like grabbed a woman inappropriately, um, it's like uh, you know it's a really clear message, almost like that they don't care, and yet the president will say that there is no place for this in the greatest military on the planet. And you know it's like well if that were true, this wouldn't happen. The Invisible War. Uh, campaign and movie would not exist and um, these women who basically feel like they have no right to say no because they're perhaps uh, you know like made to feel like they're threatened or um, just uh, somehow put in a position of doing what they're told you know perhaps there will be a punishment if they say no you know that's it's been going on. It's been going on, you know, forever. Well, and, you know, rape, rape, basically, rape and, rape and uh, domestic violence both are about power and control. They're not about a loss of temper. They're not about sex. They're about ex- one person exerting power and control over another person, which is what, you know, you're talking about. And that's exacerbated and highlighted as, in a situation where, um, you know, a person literally has higher rank or authority over the person that they're assaulting. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, in the case of the, you know, national attention that rape in the military has been getting, which is great that it's getting national attention, you know, regardless of where our culture should be, I think that part of our job is to recognize where we are and how to get to where we should be, right? Um, and so the first step is always telling the story, which is what's happening now because of the invisible war and because of other media coverage. So I'm really grateful for the people that um, have made that happen and have been highlighting those experiences essential to the conversation. Do you have any advice for people that are involved in the entertainment world? Because a lot of, you know, mainly what I usually talk about on the show is, um, you know, I have writers on the show a lot, musicians and um, game developers. And, it's it's one of those things where because rape is a very real threat to mostly women, but could be anybody, um, sometimes when it's written into a character's story, people just find that it's a cheap, easy, and lazy piece of fiction instead of recognizing that it's another avenue to talk about this. Because it really bothers me when people say, oh, that's just lazy, you know, throwing a throwing a female heroine into a situation where there's a rape threat or she's been raped and it's her backstory and it's, you know, why she is what she is today. Um, I, I think it's like more or less owning it and taking it and crafting it into something that's being discussed through fiction. But yet a lot of, a lot of writers and developers just think it's not the way to go. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a thin line. I think that we have to always be careful, um, in telling stories of survivors and telling stories of rape and even using, you know, fiction to tell those stories that we don't let rape become, um, I don't know. I think there's a way that sometimes in videos and movies and books, I see rape more as entertainment. And I think that um, and I think the difference between rape as entertainment and rape as um, sort of telling the story of rape as a call to action. Yeah. Using it as entertainment or sensationalizing it. Yeah. Like if you 
if you watch a movie where the main character is raped and you don't feel like getting off your butt and doing anything at the end of the movie, I think that that's like a form of pacifying entertainment where we can consume part of the rape that's happening all around us every day, but not feel like we need to do anything about it, not having a more critical perspective on how it functions. And then it actually does become that piece of like, oh, this is just the way that things are, which is what we were talking about in the beginning with rape culture. But I think there are ways to tell stories of rape and to tell stories of violence against women that make people stand up, that make people see it differently and have more of a critical attitude that actually creates change. And I think that that distinction is important. And I think it's important for cultural producers, whether it's writers or producers or artists, you know, whatever it is that you're making, to be aware of the fact that whatever stories you're telling, whether you consider yourself to be an advocate um, or, you know, an activist to ending rape or not, that if you're telling a story that touches on even gender, you know, that you're part of this larger system and that it's important for you as an artist to critically evaluate what part of that system you're becoming. And, you know, so looking at the work and asking people to critique the work and, you know, um, under, just understanding, like, what impact you're having is pretty essential to the role of being an artist. It's part of the responsibility, you know, of making culture. So, Do you have any um, – I, I know this is sort of like putting you on the spot, but do you have any – best examples where you think that it was handled well? Hmm. I mean, the first thing that ever comes to my mind is um, Jodie Foster's performance in The Accused. But, um, and that's strictly what that movie was about. Um, But I've seen it, you know, countless times, you know, soap operas. It's always like the good girl virgin character is growing up. How do we transition this pretty teen star into an adult role? And they always have her raped. Um, you know, to me, that's, to me, that's the lazy version, (laughs) but yet, you know, you see something like Jodie Foster and it's like, you know, outstanding and hard to sit through and you hate everybody. (laughs) Like you're saying you want, you know, you do want to act. Um, I don't know. Did did you you ever give it any thought fiction wise, what you thought worked well? Um, the example, I mean, the example that I was going to give was a play, actually, and it's not exactly what you're asking, but it's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, and so a group in New York called Spark Movement collaborated with Vibe Theater, and these are both uh, youth-centric organizations that um, encourage feminists to uh, kind of use their voice and their skills to talk about difficult issues. Um, and so they did this performance called Body Vox, and it was about the difference in the line between being sexy and being sexualized. And it was um, theater and dance, and they wrote and they choreographed. And at the end, they actually had a talk back in kind of a participatory space where people could talk about um you know, this line and sort of write letters to companies and organizations that they see as sexualizing young women rather than kind of promoting a healthy idea of sexuality. And so, you know, I think that, I guess what I think is maybe that artists and um, writers can take cues from other fields um, in terms of how to invite people to participate or be critical or ask difficult questions. Um, and I mean, I guess because of the fact that my work and like what I 
look at most of the time is in this realm of community art and um, activism. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just not in the world of uh, of fiction or um, or film production, so I can't really speak to that. Okay, that's interesting. I wonder if there's um, if there's any way to see that if it's like on YouTube or anywhere available. I videos, but I can definitely send you links. They're so awesome. So I definitely would want to promote their work. Great. Yeah, let's definitely do that. Um, we've got, a you know, a few minutes left. So I want to give you guys, like, you know, the opportunity to just, like, you know, open the floodgates. Whatever you need to say in the next, you know, five to ten minutes, the floor is yours. And um, make sure that, you know, again, people know that force is an organization out there and we'll definitely make sure that the, you know, they get the links as at the end. So the last day for the Kickstarter campaign is June 22nd, which is next Saturday, a week from this Saturday. And um, between now and then we're looking for people again, to share the link, um, to share the images that we'll be posting daily between now and then about the need for a public monument. Um, we have images that are mock-ups of what this, gigantic picnic blanket is going to look like. We have an image that compares the culture of shame and rape culture that we currently live in to one that supports and uplifts survivors. So we would like for people to, you know, repost and share as much as possible in the next few days. Um, And yeah, they can find all of that information again by going to facebook.com backslash upsetting rape culture following us on Twitter at Upsetting Rape, um, going to our website, upsettingrapeculture.com, or finding us on Kickstarter by um, searching for the Monument Quilt, or also you could um, find us by searching up um, Force Upsetting Rape Culture on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, we are eternally grateful for all of the support that we've already gotten. And, you know, in this kind of, like, final stage of the campaign we're just really counting on everybody to rally behind us so yeah that's great has there has anything surprised you with the campaign so far um you know i think it's been really great to see how much support we've um gotten from people and and not even just you know through money on kickstarter but through emails facebook um, on social media, the amount of press that we've been able to get and the conversations that have started. You know, we were actually, we we're doing a radio interview last week with a woman here in Maryland, um, on Maryland Morning, and she said, you know, before the quilt is even made, which is a big goal for you guys, um, know that, like, you're already starting those conversations that you hope to be starting. And so I think that that's, um, just campaigning, just putting the idea out there, just telling people about it already is starting the conversations and opening up those public spaces um, for people to talk about this issue in a critical way. So thanks for having us. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for your, for your time. I mean, obviously I, you know, I want this campaign to succeed. Um, you know, hopefully we won't have to do a, a backup, uh, you know, interview in six months because uh, you need, that much more funding hopefully it will just like just you know blow the bank accounts away and and you guys will be all set for for what you need because i'm i'm sure it's going to be so much work um 
But again, like you said, you're um, right around 17,000 right now. We need to get to 25,000. Um, there's all sorts of amazing rewards, um, really diverse rewards packages. So everybody go check those out. Um, really beautiful artwork, too. Whoever, whichever one of you is responsible for the artwork <laughs> from the little temporary tattoos and stuff. Um, but you guys, uh, you know, so thank you again to Rebecca Nagel and Hannah Brancato. And um, you can follow me, of course, at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter. And everything else is at AmberUnmasked.com. And that will give you links to the Facebook page and, and whatnot. But I'm sure you guys already know that. So, um, you know, thank you, ladies, for joining me. And thanks to all the listeners who, you know, got through an hour of a really sensitive and subject and difficult to talk about, difficult to listen to. And we, we did it. We all survived. We <laughs> survived this hour. Um, so uh, I will definitely be tweeting away, you know, through the next week to see the, uh, see the campaign reach goal. Thanks. We appreciate the support. Thank you so much.